Welcome to Volume 4 of The Shadow Out of Time. Chapter 5 That is the world to which my dreams brought me. Dim, scattered echoes every night. I cannot hope to give any true idea of the horror and dread contained in such echoes, for it was upon a wholly intangible quality, the sharp sense of pseudo-memory that such feelings mainly depended. As I have said, my studies gradually gave me a defense against these feelings in the form of rational psychological explanations, and this saving influence was augmented by the subtle touch of accustomedness which comes with the passage of time. Yet, in spite of everything, the vague, creeping terror would return momentarily now and then. It did not, however, engulf me as it had before, and after 1922 I lived a very normal life of work and recreation. In the course of years I began to feel that my experience, together with the kindred cases and the related folklore, ought to be definitely summarized and published for the benefit of serious students. Hence I prepared a series of articles briefly covering the whole ground and illustrated with crude sketches of some of the shapes, scenes, decorative motifs, and hieroglyphs remembered from the dreams. These appeared at various times during 1928 and 1929 in the Journal of the American Psychological Society, but did not attract much attention. Meanwhile, I continued to record my dreams with the minutest care, even though the growing stack of reports attained troublesomely vast proportions. On July 10, 1934, there was forwarded to me by the Psychological Society the letter which opened the culminating and most horrible phase of the whole mad ordeal. It was postmarked Pilbara, Western Australia, and bore the signature of one whom I found, upon inquiry, to be a mining engineer of considerable prominence. Enclosed were some very curious snapshots. I will reproduce the text in its entirety, and no reader can fail to understand how tremendous an effect it and the photographs had upon me. I was for a time almost stunned and incredulous, for although I had often thought that some basis of fact must underlie certain phases of the legends which had colored my dreams. I was nonetheless unprepared for anything like a tangible survival from a lost world remote beyond all imagination. Most devastating of all were the photographs, for here in cold, incontrovertible realism there stood out against a background of sand certain worn-down, water-ridged, storm-weathered blocks of stone whose slightly convex tops and slightly concave bottoms told their own story. And when I studied them with a magnifying glass, I could see all too plainly amidst the batterings and pittings, the tracings of those vast, curvilinear designs and occasional hieroglyphs whose significance had become so hideous to me. But here is the letter which speaks for itself.
49 Dapier Street, Pilbara, West Australia, May 18, 1934. My dear sir, a recent conversation with Dr. E.M. Boyle of Perth and some papers with your articles which he has just sent me make it advisable for me to tell you about certain things I've seen in the Great Sandy Desert east of our goldfields here. It would seem in view of the peculiar legends about old cities with huge stonework and strange designs and hieroglyphs which you describe that I have come upon something very important. The blackfellas here have always been full of talk about great stones with marks on them and seem to have a terrible fear of such things. They connect them in some way with their common racial legends about Budai, the gigantic old man who lies asleep for ages underground with his head on his arm and who will one day awake and eat up the world. There are some very old half-forgotten tales of enormous underground huts of great stone where passages lead down and down and where horrible things have happened. The blackfellas claim that once some warriors fleeing in battle went down into one and never came back, but that frightful winds began to blow from the place soon after they went down. However, there usually isn't much in what these natives say. But what I have to tell you is more than this. Two years ago, when I was prospecting about 500 miles east in the desert, I came upon a lot of queer pieces of dressed stone, perhaps 3 by 2 by 2 feet in size, and weathered and pitted to the very limit. At first, I couldn't find any of the marks the blackfellas told me about. When I looked close enough, I could make out some deeply carved lines in spite of the weathering. There were peculiar curves just like the blackfellas had tried to describe. I imagine there must have been 30 or 40 blocks, some nearly buried in the sand, and all within a circle perhaps a quarter of a mile in diameter. When I saw some, I looked around closely for more, and made a careful reckoning of the place with my instruments. I also took pictures of 10 or 12 of the most typical blocks, and will enclose the prints for you to see. I turned my information and pictures over to the government at Perth, but they have done nothing about them. Then I met Dr. Boyle, who had read your articles in the Journal of the American Psychological Society, and in time happened to mention the stones. He was enormously interested and became quite excited when I showed him my snapshots, saying that the stones and the markings were just like those in the masonry you'd dreamed about and seen described in legends. He meant to write to you, but was delayed. Meanwhile, he sent me most of the magazines with your articles, and I saw at once from your drawings and descriptions that my stones are certainly the kind you mean. You can appreciate this from the enclosed pictures. Later, you will hear directly from Dr. Boyle. Now I can understand how important all this will be to you. Without question, we're faced with the remains of an unknown civilization, older than any dreamed of before, and forming a basis for your legends. As a mining engineer, I have some knowledge of geology, and can tell you the blocks are so ancient, they frighten me. They're mostly sandstone and granite, though one is almost certainly made of a queer sort of cement or concrete. They bear evidence of water action, as if this part of the world had been submerged and come up again after long ages. It's a matter of hundreds of thousands of years, or heaven knows how much more. I don't like to think about it. In view of your previous diligent work in tracking down the legends and everything connected with them, I cannot doubt that you will want to lead an expedition to the desert and make some archaeological excavations. 
Both Dr. Boyle and I are prepared to cooperate in such work if you, or organizations known to you, can furnish the funds. I can get together a dozen miners for the heavy digging. The blackfellas would be of no use to us, for I've found that they have an almost maniacal fear of this particular spot. Boyle and I are saying nothing to others, for you very obviously ought to have precedence in any discoveries or credit. The place can be reached from Pilbara about four days by motor tractor, which we'd need for our apparatus. It's somewhat west and south of Warburton's Path of 1873, and 100 miles southeast of Joanna Spring. We could float things up the DeGray River instead of starting from Pilbara, but all that can be talked over later. Roughly, the stones lie at a point about 22 degrees 3 minutes 14 seconds south latitude, 125 degrees 0 minutes 39 degrees east longitude. The climate is tropical and the desert conditions are trying. I shall welcome further correspondence upon this subject and am keenly eager to assist in any plan you may devise. After studying your articles, I'm deeply impressed with the profound significance of the whole matter. Dr. Boyle will write later, when rapid communication is needed, a cable to Perth can be relayed by wireless. Hoping profoundly for an early message, believe me, most faithfully, yours, Robert B.F. McKenzie. Of the immediate aftermath of this letter, much can be learned from the press. My good fortune in securing the backing of Miskatonic University was great, and both Mr. McKenzie and Dr. Boyle proved invaluable in arranging matters at the Australian end. We were not too specific with the public about our objects, since the whole matter would have lent itself unpleasantly to sensational and jocose treatment by the cheaper newspapers. As a result, printed reports were sparing, but enough appeared to tell of our quest for reported Australian ruins and to chronicle our various preparatory steps. Professor William Dyer of the college's geology department, leader of the Miskatonic Antarctic Expedition of 1930-31, Ferdinand C. Ashley of the Department of Ancient History, and Tyler M. Freeborn of the Department of Anthropology, together with my son Wingate, accompanied me. My correspondent, Mackenzie, came to Arkham early in 1935 and assisted in our final preparations. He proved to be a tremendously competent and affable man of about 50, admirably well-read and deeply familiar with all the conditions of Australian travel. He had tractors waiting in Pilbara, and we chartered a tramp steamer sufficiently small to get up the river to that point. We were prepared to excavate in the most careful and scientific fashion, sifting every particle of sand and disturbing nothing which might seem to be in or near its original situation. Sailing from Boston aboard the Wheezy Lexington on March 28, 1935, we had a leisurely trip across the Atlantic and Mediterranean, through the Suez Canal, down the Red Sea, and across the Indian Ocean to our goal. I need not tell you how the sight of the low, sandy West Australian coast depressed me, and how I detested the crude mining town and dreary gold fields where the tractors were given their last loads. Dr. Boyle, who met us, proved to be elderly, pleasant, and intelligent. 
and his knowledge of psychology led him into many long discussions with my son and myself. Discomfort and expectancy were oddly mingled in most of us when at length our party of eighteen rattled forth over the arid leagues of sand and rock. On Friday, May 31st, we forded a branch of the Degray and entered the realm of utter desolation. A certain positive terror grew on me as we advanced to this actual site of the Elder World behind the legends. A terror, of course, abetted by the fact that my disturbing dreams and pseudo-memories still beset me with unabated force. It was on Monday, June 3rd, that we saw the first of the half-buried blocks. I cannot describe the emotions with which I actually touched a fragment of cyclopean masonry in every respect, like the blocks in the walls of my dream buildings. There was a distinct trace of carving, and my hands trembled as I recognized part of a curvilinear decorative scheme made hellish to me through years of tormenting nightmare and baffling research. A month of digging brought a total of some 1,250 blocks in varying stages of wear and disintegration. Most of these were carven megaliths with curved tops and bottoms. A minority were smaller, flatter, plain-surfaced, and square, or octagonally cut like those of the floor and pavement in my dreams, while a few were singularly massive and curved or slanted in such a manner as to suggest use in vaulting or groining, or as parts of arches or round window casements. The deeper and farther north and east we dug, the more blocks we found though we still failed to discover any trace of arrangement among them. Professor Dyer was appalled at the measureless age of the fragments, and Freeborn found traces of symbols which fit darkly into certain Papuan and Polynesian legends of infinite antiquity. The condition and scattering of the blocks told mutely of vertiginous cycles of time and geologic upheavals of cosmic savagery. We had an aeroplane with us, and my son Wingate would often go up to different heights and scan the sand and rock waste for signs of dim large-scale outlines, either differences of level or trails of scattered blocks. His results were virtually negative, for whenever he would one day think he had glimpsed some significant trend, he would, on his next trip, find the impression replaced by another equally insubstantial, a result of the shifting, wind-blown sands. One or two of these ephemeral suggestions, though, affected me queerly and disagreeably. They seemed, after a fashion, to dovetail horribly with something I had dreamed or read, but which I could no longer remember. There was a terrible familiarity about them, which somehow made me look furtively and apprehensively over the abominable, sterile terrain toward the north and northeast. Around the first week in July, I developed an unaccountable set of mixed emotions about the general northeasterly direction. There was horror, and there was curiosity, but more than that, there was a persistent, perplexing illusion of memory. I tried all sorts of psychological expedients to get these notions out of my head, but met with no success. 
Sleeplessness also gained upon me, but I almost welcomed this because of the resultant shortening of my dream periods. I acquired the habit of taking long, lone walks in the desert, late at night, usually to the north or northeast, whither the sum of my strange new impulses seemed subtly to pull me. Sometimes on these walks I would stumble over nearly buried fragments of the ancient masonry, though there were fewer visible blocks here than where we had started. I felt sure there must be a vast abundance beneath the surface. The ground was less level than at our camp, and the prevailing high winds now and then piled the sand into fantastic temporary hillocks, exposing low traces of the elder stones while it covered other traces. I was queerly anxious to have the excavations extend to this territory, yet at the same time dreaded what might be revealed. Obviously, I was getting into a rather bad state, all the worse because I could not account for it. An indication of my poor nervous health can be gained from my response to an odd discovery which I made on one of my nocturnal rambles. It was on the evening of July 11th, when the moon flooded the mysterious hillocks with a curious pallor. Wandering somewhat beyond my usual limits, I came upon a great stone, which seemed to differ markedly from any we had yet encountered. It was almost wholly covered, but I stooped and cleared away the sand with my hands. Later, studying the object carefully and supplementing the moonlight with my electric torch, Unlike the other very large rocks, this one was perfectly square-cut, with no convex or concave surface. It seemed, too, to be of dark basaltic substance, wholly dissimilar to the granite and sandstone and occasional concrete of the now familiar fragments. Suddenly I rose, turned, and ran for the camp at top speed. It was a wholly unconscious and irrational flight, and only when I was close to my tent did I fully realize why I had run. Then it came to me. The queer dark stone was something which I had dreamed and read about, and which was linked with the uttermost horrors of the eon-old legendary. It was one of the blocks of that basaltic elder masonry which the fabled great race held in such fear. The tall, windowless ruins left by those brooding, half-material, alien things that festered in Earth's nether abysses and against whose wind-like invisible forces the trapdoors were sealed and the sleepless sentinels posted. I remained awake all night, but by dawn realized how silly I had been to let the shadow of a myth upset me. Instead of being frightened, I should have had a discoverer's enthusiasm. The next forenoon, I told the others about my find, and Dyer, Freeborn, Boyle, my son and I set out to view the anomalous block. Failure, however, confronted us. I had formed no clear idea of the stone's location and a late wind had wholly altered the hillocks of shifting sands. Chapter 6 I come now to the crucial and most difficult part of my narrative, 
all the more difficult because I cannot be quite certain of its reality. At times I feel uncomfortably sure that I was not dreaming or deluded, and as this feeling, in view of the stupendous implications which the objective truth of my experience would raise, which impels me to make this record. My son, a trained psychologist with the fullest and most sympathetic knowledge of my whole case, shall be the primary judge of what I have to tell. First, let me outline the externals of the matter as those at the camp know them. On the night of July 17th, 18th, after a windy day, I retired early, but could not sleep. Rising shortly before eleven, and afflicted as usual with that strange feeling regarding the northeastward terrain, I set out on one of my typical nocturnal walks, seeing and greeting only one person, an Australian miner named Topper, as I left our precincts. The moon, slightly past full, shone from a clear sky and drenched the ancient sands with white. A leprous radiance which seemed to me somehow infinitely evil. There was no longer any wind, nor did any return for nearly five hours, as amply attested by Tupper and others who saw me walking rapidly across the pallid, secret-guarding hillocks toward the northeast. About 3.30 a.m., a violent wind blew up, waking everyone in camp and felling three of the tents. The sky was unclouded and the desert still blazed with that leprous moonlight. As the party saw to the tents, my absence was noted. But in view of my previous walks, this circumstance gave no one alarm. And yet, as many as three men, all Australians, seemed to feel something sinister in the air. Mackenzie explained to Professor Freeborn that this was a fear picked up from the black fellow folklore, the natives having woven a curious fabric of malignant myth about the high winds, which at long whispered blow out of the great stone huts under the ground, where terrible things have happened, and are never felt except near those places where the big marked stones are scattered. Close to four, the gale subsided as suddenly as it began, leaving the sand hills in new and unfamiliar shapes. It was just past five, with the bloated, fungoid moon sinking in the west, when I staggered into camp, hatless, tattered, features scratched and ensanguined, and without my electric torch. Most of the men had returned to bed, but Professor Dyer was smoking a pipe in front of his tent. Seeing my winded and almost frenzied state, he called Dr. Boyle, and the two of them got me on a cot and made me comfortable. My son, roused by the stir, soon joined them, and they all tried to force me to lie still and attempt sleep. But there was no sleep for me. My psychological state was very extraordinary different from anything I had previously suffered. After a time, I insisted upon talking, nervously and elaborately explaining my condition. I told them I had become fatigued and had laid down in the sand for a nap. There had, I said, been dreams even more frightful than usual, and when I was awoken by the sudden high wind, my overwrought nerves had snapped. 
I had fled in my panic, frequently falling over half-buried stones, and thus gaining my tattered and bedraggled aspect. I must have slept long, hence the hours of my absence. Of anything strange, either seen or experienced, I hinted absolutely nothing, exercising the greatest self-control in that respect. But I spoke of a change of mind regarding the whole work of the expedition, and urged a halt in all digging toward the northeast. My reasoning was patently weak, for I mentioned a dearth of blocks, a wish not to offend the superstitious miners, a possible shortage of funds from the college, and other things either untrue or irrelevant. Naturally, no one paid the least attention to my new wishes, not even my son, whose concern for my health was obvious. The next day I was up and around the camp, but took no part in the excavations. Seeing that I could not stop the work, I decided to return home as soon as possible, for the sake of my nerves, and made my son promise to fly me in the plain to Perth, a thousand miles to the southwest, as soon as he had surveyed the region I wished left alone. If, I reflected, the thing I had seen was still visible, I might decide to attempt a specific warning, even at the cost of ridicule. It was just conceivable that the miners, who knew the local folklore, might back me up. Humoring me, my son made the survey that very afternoon, flying over all the terrain my walk could possibly have covered, yet nothing of what I had found remained in sight. It was the case of the anomalous basalt block all over again. The shifting sand had wiped out every trace. For an instant I half regretted having lost a certain awesome object in my stark fright, but now I know that the loss was merciful. I can still believe my whole experience an illusion, especially if, as I devoutly hope, that hellish abyss is never found. Wingate took me to Perth on July 20th, though declining to abandon the expedition and return home. He stayed with me until the 25th when the steamer for Liverpool sailed. Now, in the cabin of the Empress, I am pondering long and frantically upon the entire matter, and have decided that my son at least must be informed. It shall rest with him whether to diffuse the matter more widely. In order to meet any eventuality, I have prepared this summary of my background, as already known in a scattered way to others, and will now tell as briefly as possible what seemed to happen during my absence from the camp that hideous night. Nerves on edge, and whipped into a kind of perverse eagerness by that inexplicable, dread-mingled, mnemonic urge toward the northeast, I plodded on beneath the evil burning moon. Here and there I saw, half shrouded by sand, those primal cyclopean blocks left from nameless and forgotten eons. The incalculable age and brooding horror of this monstrous waste began to oppress me as never before, and I could not keep from thinking of my maddening dreams, of the frightful legends which lay behind them, and of the present fears of natives and miners concerning the desert and its carven stones. And yet I plodded on as if to some eldritch rendezvous, more and more assailed by bewildering fancies and compulsions, 
than pseudo-memories. I thought of some of the possible contours of the lines of stone as seen by my son from the air, and wondered why they seemed at once so ominous and so familiar. Something was fumbling and rattling at the latch of my recollection, while another unknown force sought to keep the portal barred. The night was windless, and the pallid sand curved upward and downward like frozen waves of the sea. I had no goal, but somehow plowed along as if with fate-bound assurance. My dreams welled up into the waking world, so that each sand-embedded megalith seemed part of endless rooms and corridors of pre-human masonry, carved and hieroglyphed with symbols that I knew too well from years of custom as a captive mind of the great race. At moments I fancied I saw those omniscient conical horrors moving about at their accustomed tasks, and I feared to look down lest I find myself one of them in that aspect. Yet all the while I saw the sand-covered blocks as well as the rooms and corridors, the evil burning moon as well as the lamps of luminous crystal, the endless desert as well as the waving ferns beyond the windows. I was awake and dreaming at the same time. I do not know how long or how far, or indeed in just what direction, I had walked when I first spied the heap of stones bared by the day's wind. It was the largest group in one place that I had seen so far, and so sharply did it impress me that the visions of fabulous eons faded suddenly away. Again there was only the desert and the evil moon and the shards of the unguessed past. I drew close and paused and cast the added light of my electric torch over the tumbled pile. A hillock had blown away leaving a low, irregularly round mass of megaliths and smaller fragments some forty feet across and from two to eight feet high. From the very outset I realized there was some utterly unprecedented quality about those stones. Not only was the mere number of them quite without parallel, but something in the sand-worn traces of design arrested me as I scanned them under the mingled beams of the moon and my torchlight. Not that any one differed essentially from the earlier specimens that we had found. It was something subtler than that. The impression did not come when I looked at one block alone, but only when I ran my eye over several simultaneously. Then at last the truth dawned upon me. The curvilinear patterns on many of those blocks were closely related, parts of one vast decorative conception. For the first time in this eon-shaken waste, I had come upon a mass of masonry in its old position, tumbled and fragmentary, but nonetheless existing in a very definite sense. Mounting at a low place, I clambered laboriously over the heap, here and there clearing away the sand with my fingers and constantly striving to interpret varieties of size, shape, and style and relationships of design. After a while, I could vaguely guess at the nature of the bygone structure and at the designs which seemed at once stretched over the vast surfaces of the primal masonry. The perfect identity of the whole, with some of my dream glimpses, appalled and unnerved me. 
This was once a cyclopean corridor, thirty feet tall, paved with octagonal blocks, and solidly vaulted overhead. There would have been rooms opening off to the left and right, and at the farther end one of those strange inclined planes would have wound down to still lower depths. I started violently as these conceptions occurred to me, for there was more in them than the blocks themselves had supplied. How did I know that this level should have been far underground? How did I know that the plane leading upward should have been behind me? How did I know that the long subterranean passage to the square of pillars ought to lie on the left one level above me? How did I know that the room of machines and rightward leading tunnel to the central archives ought to lie two levels below? How did I know that there would be one of those horrible metal banded trap doors at the very bottom four levels down? Bewildered by this intrusion from the dream world, I found myself shaking and bathed in a cold perspiration. Then, as a last intolerable touch, I felt that faint insidious stream of cool air trickling upward from a depressed place near the center of the huge heap. Instantly, as once before, my visions faded and I saw again only the evil moonlight, the brooding desert, and the spreading tumulus of paleogeon masonry. Something real and tangible, yet fraught with infinite suggestions of nighted mystery now confronted me. For that stream of air could argue but one thing. A hidden gulf of great size beneath the disordered blocks on the surface. My first thought was of the sinister blackfellow legends of vast underground huts among the megaliths where horrors happen and great winds are born. Then thought of my own dreams came back and I felt dim pseudo-memories tugging at my mind. What manner of place lay below me? What primal, inconceivable source of age-old myth cycles and haunting nightmares might I be on the brink of uncovering? It was only for a moment that I hesitated, for more than curiosity and scientific zeal was driving me on and working against my growing fear. I seemed to move almost automatically, as if in the clutch of some compelling fate. Pocketing my torch and struggling with a strength that I had not thought I possessed, I wrenched aside first one tightened fragment of stone and then another, till there welled up a strong draft whose dampness contrasted oddly with the desert's dry air. A black rift began to yawn, and at length, when I had pushed away every fragment small enough to budge, the leprous moonlight blazed on an aperture of apple width to admit me. I drew up my torch and cast a brilliant beam into the opening. Below me was a chaos of tumbled masonry, sloping roughly down toward the north at an angle of about 45 degrees, and evidently the result of some bygone collapse from above. Between its surface and the ground level was a gulf of impenetrable blackness at whose upper edge were signs of gigantic, stress-heaved vaulting. At this point, 
it appeared the desert sands lay directly upon a floor of some titan structure of Earth's youth. How preserved through eons of geologic convulsion, I could not then and cannot now even attempt to guess. In retrospect, the barest idea of a sudden, long descent into such a doubtful abyss, and at a time when one's whereabouts were unknown to any living soul, seemed like the utter apex of insanity. Perhaps it was, yet that night I embarked without hesitancy upon such a descent. Again there was manifest that lure and driving of fatality which had all along seemed to direct my course. With torch flashing intermittently to save the battery, I commenced a mad scramble down the sinister, cyclopean incline below the opening, sometimes facing forward as I found good hand and footholds, at other times turning to face the heap of megaliths as I clung and fumbled more precariously. In two directions beside me, distant walls of carven, crumbling masonry loomed dimly under the direct beams of my torch. Ahead, however, was only unbroken darkness. I kept no track of time during my downward scramble, so seething with baffling hints and images was my mind that all objective matter seemed withdrawn into incalculable distances. Physical sensation was dead and even fear remained as a wraith-like, inactive gargoyle leering impotently at me. Eventually, I reached a level floor strewn with fallen blocks, shapeless fragments of stone and sand and detritus of every kind. On either side, perhaps thirty feet apart, rose massive walls culminating in huge groinings. That they were carved I could just discern, but the nature of the carvings was beyond my perception. What held me the most was the vaulting overhead. The beam from my torch could not reach the roof, but the lower parts of the monstrous arches stood out distinctly and so perfect was their identity with what I had seen in countless dreams of the Elder World that I trembled actively for the first time. Behind and above, a faint luminous blur told of the distant moonlit world outside. Some vague shred of caution warned me that I should not let it out of my sight, lest I have no guide for my return. I now advanced toward the wall at my left, where the traces of carving were plainest. The littered floor was nearly as hard to traverse as the downward heap had been, but I managed to pick my difficult way. At one place I heaved aside some blocks and locked away the detritus to see what the pavement was like, and shuddered at the utter, fateful familiarity of the great octagonal stones whose buckled surface still held roughly together. Reaching a convenient distance from the wall, I cast the searchlight slowly and carefully over its worn remnants of carving. Some bygone influx of water seemed to have acted on the sandstone surface, while there were curious incrustations which I could not explain. In places the masonry was very loose and distorted, and I wondered how many eons more this primal hidden edifice could keep its remaining traces of form amidst earth's heavings. But it was the carvings themselves that excited me most. 
Despite their time-crumbled state, they were relatively easy to trace at close range, and the complete intimate familiarity of every detail almost stunned my imagination. That the major attributes of this hoary masonry should be familiar was not beyond normal credibility. Powerfully impressing the weavers of certain myths, they had become embodied in a stream of cryptic lore which, somehow, coming to my notice during the amnesiac period, had evoked vivid images in my subconscious mind. But how could I explain the exact and minute fashion in which each line and spiral of these strange designs tallied with what I had dreamed for more than a score of years? What obscure, forgotten iconography could have reproduced each subtle shading and nuance which so persistently, exactly, and unvaryingly besieged my sleeping vision night after night? For this was no chance or remote resemblance. Definitely and absolutely, the millennially ancient, eon-hidden corridor in which I stood was the original of something I knew its sleep as intimately as I knew my own house in Crane Street. True, my dreams showed the place in its undecayed prime, but the identity was no less real on that account. I was wholly and horribly oriented. The particular structure I was in was known to me. Known, too, was its place in that terrible elder city of dreams that I could visit unerringly any point in that structure or in that city which had escaped the changes and devastations of uncounted ages, I realized with hideous and instinctive certainty. What in heaven's name could all this mean? How had I come to know what I knew, and what awful reality could lie behind those ancient tales of the beings who had dwelt in this labyrinth of primordial stone? Words can convey only fractionally the welter of dread and bewilderment which aided my spirit. I knew this place. I knew what lay before me, and what had lain overhead before the myriad towering stories had fallen to dust and debris and the desert. No need now, I thought with a shudder, to keep that faint blur of moonlight in view. I was torn betwixt a longing to flee and a feverish mixture of burning curiosity and driving fatality. What had happened to this monstrous megapolis of old, the millions of years since the time of my dreams? Of the subterranean mazes which had underlain the city and linked all the titan towers, how much still survived the writhings of the earth's crust? Had I come upon a whole buried world of unholy archism? Could I find the house of the writing master at the tower where Sigha, captive mind from the star-headed vegetable carnivores of Antarctica, had chiseled certain pictures on the blank spaces of the walls? Would the passage of the second level down to the hall of the alien mines be still unchoked and traversable? In that hall, the captive mind of an incredible entity a half-plastic denizen of the hollow interior of an unknown transplutonian planet eighteen million years in the future had kept a certain thing which it had modeled from clay. I shut my eyes and put my hand to my head in a vain, pitiful effort to drive these insane dream fragments from my consciousness. 
Then, for the first time, I felt acutely the coolness, the motion, and dampness of the surrounding air. Shuddering, I realized that a vast chain of eon-dead black gulfs must indeed be yawning somewhere beyond and below me. I thought of the frightful chambers and corridors and inclines as I recalled them from my dreams. Would the way to the central archive still be open? Again that driving fatality tugged insistently at my brain as I recalled the awesome records that once lay cased in those rectangular vaults of rustless metal. There, said the dreams and legends, had reposed the whole history, past and future, of the cosmic space-time continuum, written by captive minds from every orb and every age in the solar system. Madness, of course, but had I now not stumbled into a knighted world as mad as I? I thought of the locked metal shelves and the curious knob twistings needed to open each one. My own came vividly into my consciousness. How often had I gone through that intricate routine of varied turns and pressures in the terrestrial vertebrate section on the lowest level, every detail fresh and familiar. If there was such a vault as I had dreamed of, I could open it in a moment. It was then that the madness took me utterly. An instant later, and I was leaping and stumbling over the rocky debris toward the well-remembered incline to the depths below.